Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Today, I'd like to welcome Brandon Adams to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon. Hey, awesome. Uh, Good to be here. Good to meet you. Uh, Happy to chat. Brandon, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm uh, in my mid-30s. Uh, birthday's in a couple weeks. Uh, I've got uh, a wife of 10 years and two boys, um, six and eight. We live up in southern Washington, and uh, we are members of a church called uh, Northwest Gospel Church. Um, and uh, I run a, a video production company. Tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, the, the latter? Yes. Um, yeah, I do a lot of corporate video. Um, so a lot of stuff in the Bay Area. Um, uh, nothing terribly exciting, but, uh, you know, shoot and edit video and, and uh, make stuff for YouTube. Well, cool. Today, I've asked Brandon to join the podcast to discuss 1689 federalism, also called Baptist Covenant Theology. So, Brandon, what exactly is Baptist Covenant Theology? Uh, thanks for the question. Um, the Baptist Covenant theology, what is that? Well, it's it's a good question. Um, what is covenant theology? First of all, we could say covenant theology is um, the what distinguishes covenant theology from other uh, views of the Bible. It's an overall understanding of Scripture. It's the view that uh, there are two covenants in scripture that all of mankind falls under one or the other and they determine the eschatological end of of man uh, and those two covenants are the covenant of works and the covenant of grace uh, we can dive into that in a bit but um, essentially covenant theology understands that those two covenants structure all of all of biblical theology uh, those who are in Adam are condemned under the covenant of works, and those who through faith are in Christ are in the covenant of grace. And so covenant theology holds to, to those two covenants, uh, whereas other, other views of scripture do not. So uh, within that general understanding of covenant theology, you have, you have different, different views, a paedo-baptist version, uh, then you also have a, a baptist version. Um, Within the Baptist version, you can have a variety of opinion. Uh, not everybody who holds to Baptist covenant theology necessarily holds to 1689 federalism. Um, so we're getting a little complicated here, but you know it's a complicated subject, and labels are important uh, for the discussion. Uh, 1689 federalism is just meant to uh, refer to the understanding of covenant theology that was popular in the 17th century when particular Baptists first emerged in England. 
uh, they emerged out of the congregational context and they developed a covenant theology and and uh, we have labeled it today 1689 federalism and uh, it does not mean that um, you have to hold to this particular understanding in order to hold to the London Baptist Confession. The London Baptist Confession is written broadly enough to allow a diversity of Baptist views, um, but the, the predominant understanding of Baptist covenant theology is what we would call 1689 federalism. And in a nutshell, it's the idea that, like I said, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. When we talk about the covenant of grace, um, 1689 federalism would argue that only the new covenant is in fact that covenant of grace in Christ. Uh, so that's what essentially would distinguish it from other views. Okay, well, thank you for that answer. Very good answer. Uh, and you kind of segued into our next question, which I had for you is, uh, can you describe to us the relationship between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? And maybe define those for our listener that doesn't know exactly what those are. Sure. So the, the covenant of works refers to the covenant that God made with Adam before the fall uh, in the garden. And he made it with Adam as a representative head or a legal head or a covenant head of all of mankind. So all of those who are in Adam, uh, which is all of mankind, male and female, uh, are in the covenant of works and were represented by Adam. And as created in the image of God, uh, Adam and all of man have an obligation to obey the moral law. But obedience to the moral law is simply the duty that we owe God as our creator. We, we don't, uh, Adam was not to obey moral law simply as an image bearer in order to try to earn some kind of reward or, or an expectation of some kind of reward. He was simply to uh, obey the moral law. And if he didn't, he would be condemned. Uh, God's wrath would be upon him if he failed. Uh, but that would be it. He would, as a servant, he would be obligated to obey God's law indefinitely. Uh, however, God was pleased to, out of his um, kindness, condescend and offer Adam something that he could strive for through obedience to this law, uh, that he would not perpetually be living life on this earth, guarding himself not to one day slip and fall into condemnation you know, indefinitely. But God offered him the possibility of being confirmed in his righteousness. So that's what we have in mind when we talk about eternal life. Right? So God offered Adam the possibility that he could earn eternal life meaning that somehow his nature could be changed so that he would no longer be able to sin, you know, no longer have this possibility of breaking the law and being condemned, but his nature would somehow be transformed so that he could enjoy uh, life with God forever apart from sin. He would be confirmed in that state. And so that was a reward that God offered to Adam. If he, if he perfectly obeyed, uh, God's law for a certain amount of time, we call this a probation. If he completed that probation and obeyed God's law perfectly, he could earn or enter eternal life. Uh, does that make sense in a nutshell? Yes, yes. Uh, and so God um, 
when God makes covenants, he, he likes to use signs or symbols to represent various aspects of the covenant. And so in this covenant of works that God made with Adam, he symbolized this reward with the tree of life. Right? This was the tree that Adam could one day eat of if he completed his successful probation in order to enter into eternal life. And then God also uh, placed a tree in the Garden of Eden, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam was not to eat from. And this served as, as a test. And we could maybe even say this was you know, the, the probation itself, part of the probation itself, uh, was whether or not Adam would, would fall under Satan's deceit or whether he would trust in God and look to God for wisdom and support. Uh, during that time. So uh, some people will refer to those as, as symbolic or sacramental trees uh, because they represent um, the reward offered in the covenant of works. But Adam failed. Uh, he did not look to God when he was confronted with this uh, temptation. He looked to himself, trusted himself, and he fell. And because he was our legal representative head, all those who came after him were condemned in him, uh, both legally and our natures were, uh, were condemned in sin and we are born depraved and, and seeking out sin. Okay. And then segue us into the covenant of grace then. So immediately after the fall, uh, that should have been it. That should have been the end. Uh, Adam is condemned forever along with Eve and that's it. Close the book. Uh, but God had something else in mind. He had something much more glorious in mind. And that was the glorification of Christ and the salvation of his people. So in order for that to happen, God delayed the final judgment against Adam and Eve and, and allowed them to continue living uh, in order to set the stage for Christ's work of redemption. And, and essentially what we talk about with the covenant of grace are... Uh, we tend to actually recognize that there are two different, very related covenants involved in the covenant of grace. The first is what we would refer to as the covenant of redemption. And that is what we could look at as Christ's covenant of works. So like God made a covenant of works with Adam and offered him a reward. In fact, before time began, before God ever made this covenant with Adam, he made a covenant with the father made a covenant with the son promising that if the son would come to earth perfectly obey where adam failed to obey perfectly obey the law and then suffer in the place of his people through death on the cross that god would give him as a reward these people and redeem those people from their sin and from their eternal punishment uh, so there, Christ was to come and, and take their place, take our place. And so Christ agreed to do that. Uh, he, he agreed in the covenant of redemption before time began. He agreed to come to earth to obey perfectly, to take upon himself our sin, and then to share with us his righteousness. Uh, and he did that on the cross. Now, the question that becomes interesting at this point, we don't need to dive into it, but if that happened before time began, you know, at what point are his people actually saved? You know, are, are we saved from eternity? Uh, are we saved at the cross? Or are we saved when we have faith? And that's where the, um, 
sorry, one second. And that's where the covenant of grace comes in. Uh, the covenant of grace is our union with Christ. It is our marriage covenant with Christ. It's how we are wed to him. It's how we are legally united to him. And it's how his benefits become ours. Um, it's, it's the legal nature in which our wrath is, our, our, our sinfulness is shared with Christ and his righteousness is shared with us. And that doesn't happen until the, the effectual call. Uh, in the effectual call, God unites us to Christ through the spirit, through faith. And at that moment, we are taken out of the covenant of works with Adam and placed into the covenant of grace with Christ. And at that point in time, we are, we are saved. Uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Uh, through faith, we are justified and delivered from the condemnation we had under Adam. Well, awesome. Uh, my next question for you is, how does a 1689 Federalist view the covenant of grace in the Old Testament? Again, a really good, really good question. So that goes back to kind of what we were just talking about. Um, you know, if, if Christ had promised before the foundations of the world to save his people, at what point are they actually saved? And we said it was um, in the effectual call. We could actually say that the effectual call is God making the covenant of grace with us. Um, but the question is how then were Old Testament saints saved if Christ had not yet come uh, to live the perfect life, to bear, their wrath, to bear their sin on the cross, to bear God's wrath in their place? Uh, how could they be saved? Um, well, again, go back to the covenant of redemption. Christ promised that he would come and do these things. It was a guaranteed certainty because Christ can be taken for his word as an absolute certainty. So it was a legal certainty that he would come to bear the sins of all of the people who lived prior to his incarnation. And so these people who lived in the Old Testament, we could say that they were able to take an advance out on, on Christ's work. So, um, Sometimes a, a banks will offer you uh, an advance on your paycheck, right? So you've got a job and you get paid every two weeks. It's a legal certainty. You know you're going to get paid, but you don't have the, the money in the account yet. Uh, banks will sometimes allow you to take an advance on that paycheck before you actually get it because they know it's coming. In the same way, <clears throat> Old Testament saints were able to take an advance on Christ before it actually was accomplished. They could uh, receive all the benefits of union with Christ prior to him actually coming and dying on the cross because it was a legal certainty. Uh, the way that the confession puts it is in chapter 8, paragraph 6. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. So that kind of gets at how, uh, how, how they were saved in their own day. We are saved today through hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. They were saved in the same way. That gospel was just more darkly revealed through types and shadows. 
Um, but it was the same, same salvation in the same way. They hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and they are united to Christ and are saved. So what then would be the major difference between uh, Presbyterian federalism and Baptist federalism? The main difference would be how they understand the relationship of the new covenant to all of the Old Testament covenants after the Adamic covenant. So the Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants. Um, as I've explained so far, 1689 federalism would say that only the new covenant is covenant of grace. And so Abraham, Moses, David, all of those men who were saved in the Old Testament, they were saved through the new covenant, you know, working in advance in the same way that they were saved by Christ's redemption, uh, sorry, by Christ's uh, atonement uh, in advance before it actually occurred. They were saved by the new covenant in advance before it was formally established at Pentecost and in the death of Christ. Um, and so that, that's how 1689 federalism would view it. Uh, Presbyterians like Westminster federalism uh, would say that, well, no, actually the, the new, yes, that's true. They were saved through the new covenant in, a, in advance, uh, but they would say that function because the old covenant, um, and the, all of the covenants, uh, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic, those are all actually the same covenant, and they are all actually the same covenant as the new covenant. All of those together are the covenant of grace, just looked at at different points in history. So they would say, you know, the Mosaic and the new covenant are the same covenant, the Abrahamic and the new covenant are the same covenant. Um, all that changes is the, the outward appearance. The ordinances change, but what they refer to as the substance is the same. So they would refer to it as, you know, the same man just putting on different clothes. So the Abrahamic covenant is the same man as the new covenant. It's just wearing different clothes. Uh, so that would be the difference between the two views. Okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, what exactly is new covenant theology and how is it different than 1689 federalism? So New Covenant theology is a little more difficult to define because um, they don't necessarily have a unifying document and there are a lot of divergent views within it. It's, it's essentially a view that um, at least uh, got a name and, and sort of started to develop around the 70s, 80s and on into today. It was, um, it, it, does not, sorry, I'm trying to think of the best way to, to summarize it. Uh, they disagree about the moral law. And within that camp, you have a lot of different understandings of the moral law. Some would deny that there is any moral law, that the law is always changing and unique to every circumstance in history. Uh, the better New Covenant theologians would recognize, know that there, there is an unchanging standard that applies to all men they would just not recognize it as, as the Ten Commandments. Uh, they would also not agree with the whole concept of the covenant of grace, covenant of works, uh, at least not the covenant of grace for those who, whom I've talked with and read. Um, they would say that Old Testament saints, for example, were not saved through the covenant of grace. They were just saved through God's eternal purpose. It was outside of any specific covenant. It, it wasn't, salvation is not covenantal. 
Um, it's simply through God's, God's purpose is the way they would refer to it. Um, and does that, does that help at all? Yes. That's, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. So you, and you'll have different, different views there. Um, uh, progressive covenantalism is a subcategory of new covenant theology. Uh, they would tend to reject any kind of covenant of works at all. Uh, no, no covenant of, there is no covenant of works in scripture anywhere. Um, so they tend to actually reject the law gospel distinction as well. You can see this in the shorter volume called uh, Progressive Covenantalism. Um, I think that's, that's very troubling, uh, but that's, that's kind of where they end up with that. Well, Brandon, I appreciate you taking the time today to come on and introduce the podcast to uh, 1689 Federalism. My last question for you today is, what are some uh, other resources you would recommend to someone beginning to study historic Baptist covenant theology? I have sitting on my desk here, The Distinctives of Baptist Covenant Theology by Pascal Denault, and I have uh, Nehemiah Cox and John Owen's book, Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ. What are some other resources that we can look at? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on where the individual is coming from. Uh, I would point them to the website 1689federalism.com. Um, that page has, I think, three or four kind of introductory videos. Uh, and then if you go up to the very top, there's a link that says recommended reading. And there's a list there of about 10 books with, you know, in kind of the order that's recommended, it kind of gives some comments on, on the value of each one. So depending on where somebody's at, they can, they can decide which one would be best. Uh, to, to the list that you added, I would definitely recommend Sammy Renahan's book called uh, From Shadow to Substance. Uh, it's really, really, really good. Um, best work right now. And, and I believe he has an, another book coming out uh, this summer. Um, the from shadow to substance is historical in nature, and this next one will be uh, presenting an overall all, overall view. Um, the Cox Owen book is very good, but it's also very technical and re requires a lot of work to get through. Uh, the website I mentioned has some outlines to help you get through those books. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd take them take a look at the website at, at the reading list there and see if you can find something helpful. Brandon, I appreciate you coming on today and taking the time. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Well, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. God bless you, too. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.